you thought about that? You understand what I'm saying? I may get a job. I may have to have I have to have a college degree. I have to be over 18 years old. Am I telling you about the qualifications, or am I telling you about the job itself? Just the qualifications, right? And really, think about those two texts. Does it say what the work is, or does it just say what the man looks like? Which is it? It's really mostly what the man looks like. Now, there's a little bit of a hint. For example, in Titus, he says you need to know the scripture, you know, so you can refute the false teacher, the gainsayer, right? So there's one thing they do, at least. But in general, there's not a lot of teaching in those texts about what elders do. I think that it's because maybe Timothy Titus kind of already knew what elders did. In fact, were there elders in the Old Testament? Yeah, there were elders in the Israelites. Were there elders in the Jewish nation when Jesus walked the earth? Have you ever heard, like, the chief priests and the elders? They weren't always good people, of course. Didn't treat Jesus right, but they knew about elders. That was a common thing, where the older men in the group were kind of the leaders. Because why would you do that? Old folks are tired, you know. Why Why would you choose the older people in a group? They have experience. You hope to have some character that they built over time. So that if they're respected and they've lived a long time, they would be in a position where they would make many decisions. And that's true in really a lot of things, isn't it? A lot of cultures just have that. You respect the elder and they kind of take a leadership role. Now, in the New Testament, of course, there's some other special qualifications. But that's nothing unusual to have elders really in a small group of people. Does everybody see that? But we haven't really looked at what elders do. That's what I want to talk about. And you may be disappointed, but I'm not going to really look at First Timothy 3 or Titus 1. We're going to look at other texts that tell us what elders do. Okay? Did I tell you where to turn to yet? Acts 20. That's a good idea. Let's go to Acts 20. Because there is an elders meeting going on in Acts chapter 20. You know that story? You probably know if you've been in the church where there are elders. The elders have lots of meetings. What do they do in those meetings? Well, here's an example of elders who are meeting, and they actually have called in a consultant. And who is that consultant in this meeting in Acts chapter 20? The Apostle Paul. More than that, it's actually an offsite. They went down to Miletus to meet with the Apostle Paul to talk about their work in general terms. And I'll just tell you, do you think Paul was helping them understand what their role as elders was supposed to be? That's what he said. In fact, he says, you know, shepherd the church of God. And he says, from your own number men will arise, teaching Paul's doctrine. He's warning them and telling them. But you know, Paul used an example of someone, he said, you know, you need to be like this person in your elder. You know who Paul used as the perfect or as an example of an elder in the elder's work? You might think Jesus. You might think Jesus. But he used himself, actually. Look closely at Acts 20. I'm going to put this up so I can turn to my text here. So look, for example, uh, it says in uh, verse 18, well, we start at the beginning of the story. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you. 
Who's he using as the example of what an elder does? It's himself. He said, look at me. I was with you for three years. And look at some of the things he does. Look down in verse 31. Therefore, watch and remember what? That for three years, who? I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Is that possibly what an elder is supposed to do? Is night and day to warn everyone with tears? I don't know anybody that cries a lot, you know? <laughs> but it could be that that's what elders do. That they warn everyone, and tears are a part of that. And is it possible that elders work night and day? I should say day and night. Yeah, that's true. But who's the example again? It's the Apostle Paul. And then finally look down to verse 35. I've shown you... Wait. I have shown you... That's, that's the point we're making, isn't it? I have shown you in every way by laboring like this. I'm using New King James. I hope it's close to what you said. That you should support the rich members of the congregation. That you should take care of that family that founded the church years ago. You should make sure that you make that man who has the deed to the building happy. You make sure you support the members who contribute a lot of money to the church. Who are we supporting as an elder? It says that you support the weak. You see that? What does a weak person look like? I saw some people coming in with canes a few minutes ago. Is that a weak person, or is that maybe one of the stronger persons? Very likely one of the stronger. We're not talking about physically weak people, are we? We're talking about spiritually weak. And what does a spiritually weak person look like? What would their life look like? You think they might get into trouble from time to time? You think they might miss some services from time to time? You think they might have a trouble in their life setting priorities the way it ought to be? Is that what a weak person looks like? You know, sometimes we think of people like that as troublemakers or disadvantages to the group. Paul's saying, what is the primary work of an elder? Who is that? Who is it aimed at? That's the work. And we could get discouraged by them and we say, boy, if those people were just out of here, we could get some real work done. Wait a minute. What is the product of the church? It's getting weak people to grow up to be strong. That is our work. And that's what elders do. Now, I'm going to take a little digression here for a second. I don't know what your picture of an elder is, but I think in many places, even where there are elders and have been for many years, the picture of the eldership are those men who go into the back room and make decisions about who to hire to be the preacher. Or how much money to spend on the building. Right? Or who we're going to have come for the gospel meeting. Or what we're going to study in the group Bible class. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Or they're the person at the end of the service that stand up there by that Lord's Supper table and say, now y'all be back again tonight. We'll have another service. You see what I'm saying? That's kind of what we picture because that's what we see. But if an elder was doing everything that Paul describes, laboring night and day, by the way, he says, publicly and from house to house, are we going to see a lot of the work they do? No, probably not. We won't see necessarily nearly all the tears and the heartache and the struggle that they have helping the weak 
So I'm going to suggest to you, humor me on this, that really that an elder maybe has two kinds of work. Because they do make some of the decisions collectively for the church. You remember in the New Testament when the brethren sent the money to Judea because of the famine. Whose feet did they lay it at to distribute that money? At the elders' feet. Now that's a collective work, don't you think? They had to decide who in the group was neediest and how to distribute that money. I'm going to call that flock shepherding. Because, you know, you think of a flock as a collective group. The word church is a collective group. Churches milk multiple individual people. That's singular now. You all know the grammar. The flock is singular now, but it represents lots of sheep, right? That's one kind of word, flock shepherd. So it's something like this. Who are we going to come and have preached <coughs> That would be flock shepherd. Does that make sense? Because it affects everybody. What time's our service on Sunday afternoon? Not that that's ever controversial. <laughs> right? Is that, you see, that's a flock shepherding decision. Because it affects everybody. Y'all see that? And I'm going to call the other kind of shepherding the helping the weak, the laboring in house to house with tears night and day. I'm going to call that sheep shepherding. Y'all okay with that? Well, I'm making that up. But you see that there's both those kinds of work. You okay with that? After I'm gone, you don't ever have to use those terms the same way. <laughs> but for now, we're going to talk about sheep shepherding and flock shepherding. So when I go to a sister or a brother, and I say, you're not living right, and this is really hard, but we're going to have to withdraw from you, is that sheep shepherding or flock shepherding? That was a trick question. Somebody said both. Why do you say both? The preservation of the whole, you have to okay. The effort to save the soul of the individual is the heart and core of sheep shepherding. That's what it's about, right? I've been with them, I've pleaded with them, I've cried with them, and I've gotten to the point where I just have to follow the New Testament pattern, 1 Corinthians 5, for example, that I can have no fellowship with this person, right? I'm not judging those without, that's what 1 Corinthians 5 says, but I have to judge those men and women in the church when they're immoral. But, you know, Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, you need to purge the leaven from among you. Is that flock shepherding or sheep shepherding concerned there? That's the flock. Because if that immorality is allowed to continue, then are other people going to be affected? The group will be, and there will be a leavening effect. The ladies probably know more about that than the men. But the leavening effect in the group will affect the whole lump, as he says. You all see that? But still, you can see the difference between those two kinds. Now, here's my challenge question. I'm going to look at a couple more verses before we answer that. But I want you to put this in your head. Which of those two, sheep shepherding or flock shepherding, do you think is the main work? The most Don't answer. <laughs> Which is the main work that elders do? I also want you to think what you think that answer is. Flock shepherding or sheep shepherding? Which is the main thing? that an elder, shepherd, bishop, overseer, presbyter uh, does. Okay, you got your candidate answer. We're going to look at some verses and see what the Bible says about that. Look over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Brethren, to recognize those 
who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, the word elder isn't used, but who do you think that might be? Who might be over these Christians in the Lord? There's really no other role in, in the New Testament and in the preacher that are over them in that sense. Right? And look what he says. They're over you in the Lord and admonish you. And what? Verse 13. And esteem them very highly in love for... Because they're really the smartest people in the whole church. Because they never make mistakes. Right? Because they were duly elected by the congregation. What is the reason that we should esteem these men highly? Because the work they're doing is the most important work that anyone could have. Which is trying to get people to heaven. We're going to look at verse that says that in just a minute. We esteem these men, and I think sometimes we expect more from elders than they can ever live up to. I'll tell you what God says to honor them for. It's because of that huge endeavor they're involved in and the importance of that. You see that? Esteem them highly for their work's sake. Now, kind of makes the question that, okay, well, we're trying to figure out what their work is, but that's one idea. Do you get the sense, too, that there's a kind of a submission that's implied here? Recognize those who labor among you and are over you, Lord. And I'll tell you, that makes some people uncomfortable. Wait a minute. There's somebody ruling over me. They can tell me what to do. Do I always have to do what they tell me? You know, especially in America, I think we get uncomfortable where somebody has some control over over, over our lives. I think I'm going to make that question even harder in a few minutes, but I want you to think about that. Are we supposed to submit to these people? Do I have to do what they say? What if I don't agree with them? Do I still have to submit to them? These are questions I want to challenge you with. Look over in Hebrews 13. There's some. I don't. You probably don't usually go to these verses first when you're studying elders because we always go to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 talk about qualification. I want to talk to you about what they work. That's what I'm trying to do. <coughs> go to Hebrews 13. That's the last chapter of Hebrews. And there are a couple of verses, actually three in this same chapter, that mention elders, I believe, 7, 17, I believe maybe, down there in 24. But I want you to look at 17. Obey those, well, here we go again. I have to submit to these people. Obey those who rule over you. And I want to tell you, that word rule is a pretty strong word. Another place it's used in is in uh, the Greek word is used in Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter seven, and he's telling the story of Joseph. Y'all remember Joseph? And Joseph was made the second ruler in all of Egypt. Is that a position of authority? Was for Joseph? Same word is used here. And that makes us uncomfortable because we don't like the idea of somebody and be submissive. Oh, that's even harder. Right? Be submissive. For what reason again? They're the smartest men in the church? No. Now we're understanding what their work is. They watch in behalf of your soul. You see that? That's what elders do. Now I'm back to my question. Flock shepherding or sheep shepherding? Which is, what's the most important? What's the core work that they do? Somebody's saying sheep. Am I I dragging you all to that conclusion? Or you, you think? 
does the church have a soul? In watching behalf of your soul, does he mean the soul of the collective church or does he mean the souls of individuals? Y'all see where I'm going with this question, right? What is the real work that elders do is they watch in behalf of your soul. That's an individual saying, I'm sorry, we, I wish we could all go to heaven in a boat. <laughs> right? As a group. But that's not the way it works. We're each one of us responsible. We will, each man will stand in judgment accountable for the deed done to the body. Okay. Uh, look over in Ephesians 4. I'm going to overprove my point, but I'm just, I just think that's the truth of the New Testament. Ephesians 4. And here in Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus and he said, you know, God has left you some gifts. Gifts. And by the way, I think he means in the context of warfare. These are things that will help you in your warfare. If you back up a little bit, you'll see that he quotes from a psalm that's quite militant. Here's the warfare you're fighting. If you go on later, in the sixth chapter, is there, there's a reference to armor, standing against the wiles of the devil. It's kind of a but God didn't leave us unarmed. He gave us some tools to allow us to grow up and be strong and not be tossed to and fro as children. That's what this text is. What are these gifts? Look at verse 11. He himself gave some to me apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors. Y'all know that word pastor is the same as elder. It just means shepherd. That's another word for shepherd. Pastors and teachers. Those are the gifts. Now, I see five of those, right? Apostles and prophets. We don't have those anymore, right? That's a trick question. We don't have apostles and prophets anymore. Is that right? No. That's right. We have the same ones that the New Testament church had. Did those apostles give us some gifts that we still use even today? And those prophets, I'm holding it. That's how we got it. That's the gift they gave us. But beyond the apostles and prophets, there are evangelists and pastors, that is, shepherds and teachers. All of those gifts, you think they're meant just to keep a local church in business and running smoothly, or are they intended to save souls? Let's read on. What does it say? For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry... Now, that doesn't tell me very much. It's a toolbox to do some work, but that begs the question, right? What is the work? Let's keep reading. For the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. Does that sound like a collective thing or an individual thing? We all come to a perfect man. That kind of sounds like a quick question. If we all come, that means every individual's getting there, doesn't it? And keep reading. Um, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should be no longer children. Do we have children among us? Are we all children? No. Now, you know, we're probably not talking about the toddlers. That's not the kind of children we're talking about. You know that, based on this text right here? That you should be no longer children. Is it possible that somebody that's quite old is still a child, spiritually? Is that a bad thing? I got no and yes, and that's right. 
What's a situation where it would not be a bad thing? An older person, but they're just a baby in Christ. What would be what would be a good way that could happen? They're a new Christian. Right? You're converted. You finally decide to obey the Lord. Your sins are forgiven, but you don't know very much. And if somebody came with a false doctrine, you would be tossed to and fro. Right? Because you don't know you don't know how to answer those questions. You're a child. Is it bad to be a child? No. What is bad about that? If you don't grow up. And he said our role in these gifts, including pastors and elders, is to make sure we don't stay children. It's not throw the children out of the church because they keep us up at night crying and getting into trouble. Does that ever happen? Spiritually, I mean? Yes, it does. And by the way, remember what our work was? I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you should help the... Right. You can put the word children in there if you wanted to. That we be no longer children tossed to and fro. Are you, are you by dragging you along this logic here? Can I go back to my question? What's the main work of shepherds and pastors? Is it flock shepherding or is it sheep shepherding? It's sheep shepherding. And I think in this text, if you look at the beginning and the end of it, he kind of talks about unity. And he says, um, like, he says, verse 13, till we all, that's all, maybe the whole group, come to the unity of the faith. Now skip down to the end of the text. He comes back to that. From the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. That sounds collective, doesn't it? Although every individual has its own. But our body and all our joints have to work together. That's a collective. What's the purpose of having a healthy collective body? Who am I benefiting? Or I can ask the question in a negative way. Who am I hurting when I don't have the unity? of the body and the love that draws everyone together. That's what this text is about. Who am I hurting primarily? I'm hurting everybody, but who is the one who's really going to suffer in my collective group if I can't get along with my brother or I'm not pulling my share of that which every joint supplies? It's going to be the weak, isn't it? If I'm not getting along with my brother or I'm causing trouble or bringing in false teaching or being difficult, I'm hurting the weaker than more than the stronger. That's what he says. That they're no longer children, what? Tossed to and fro. So you see the elders, they, they are flock shepherds. I'm telling you they are, but what's the purpose of flock shepherding? Really? It's to make the sheep grow. It's to keep the flock safe and sheltered and peaceful and energetic so we can help the weak. So we can be no longer children. So we can grow up into the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ. Am I convincing you of this? I, I just want you to know that. And I'm telling you, if you've been in a place where they're elders, or they thought about having shepherds appointed, a lot of times there's a fear because they might appoint a terrible preacher. Or they might waste a bunch of money on the church building. Or they might call for services on Sunday night at 9.30 p.m. <laughs> Are those the issues that shepherds really should be worrying about as the primary thing? <laughs> Who is it working in for? I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you have to support the weak. And that very next verse is interesting to me. It says, as Jesus said, it is better to give than to receive. Y'all know that verse? You know that's not in any of the gospel accounts of Jesus, but I think he said it. It's better to give than receive. But you know, sometimes we use that verse to prove that you should 
it's better for me to make a chocolate cake for you than it is for somebody to give a chocolate cake to me. But do you see the context of that verse now? This giving and, and receiving is in the context of helping. It's the next verse. It's in the context of helping a weaker brother. Is that, do you see that? How often do we think of our life and our giving as not chocolate cake? It's the time and effort required to help a weaker brother who's struggling, who's in, who's in trouble, who needs spiritual guidance. They need some tough things told to them. And they need some love shown. And they may need some support, and that may have to stay up late at night, and I may have to shed some tears. But that's the giving that's better than receiving. That's what the verse is about. That's what that verse is saying. That's the context of that. So this is the hard part. You remember we kind of talked about how difficult it is for us to think about being in submission and somebody else having the rule over us? Think about it. Based on what we just said, what's the primary role of elder? Sheep or, or flock shepherd? Sheep shepherds. So if that's true, where's the primary area of submission going to be? Is it going to be that I come to the building when they say to come and I put my money in the basket and I'm in submission? I, have to, I always tell this story. The men who get up at our service often say this. They said, the elders have set aside this time, you know, to contribute our money. I was an elder for a while. I never remember setting aside that time. <laughs> but that's what they say. I don't want to say You realize that deciding, you know, when to have the collection and when to have the service, that's a flock shepherding thing, right, isn't it? And so is our idea of submission that I just show up on time when the elders said we're going to have a meeting? Is that what we mean by submission? I'm going to ask the same question again. If the primary work is flock shepherding, where's the primary submission going to be? I, I said that wrong, didn't I? Yes, you did. I'm so glad y'all thought I'm kind of start over. If the primary work is sheep shepherding, sheep shepherding, where's the primary submission going to be? Oh, this is so hard to say out loud. Because is sheep shepherding personal? Yes. Would it have to do with my personal life and my personal decisions? Whoa, wait a minute. What I do on my own time is my business. <laughs> right? You see this? What does submission look like to an elder if his primary role is to help me in my personal life to grow up? Them into the image of Christ. What kind of things is he going to be telling you? You need to sit up on the front row. What are the kind of things an elder would say to you if his primary role is helping my soul? He watches in behalf of my individual soul. And I'm going to ask you this. So, <laughs> The word rule is used, and it's a rule that a rule word that has to do something like maybe a ruler in government. And he says, and be in submission and submit yourself. Do you need to hear all those words? They're in the New Testament. In the same verses, by the way, it talks about his personal role, right? Getting us to heaven and so on. If an elder comes to you and says, you know what, I think the job you've got is a pretty bad influence in your life. And I think you might need to think about a different career because I think you're being tempted. 
And we can talk about it. I'll try to understand better what's going on in your life. But I, that's my recommendation. What would submission look like? <laughs> Wait a minute. That's not a whole lot. Hey, you know what? I think that uh, that lawyer did is bad. It will not be best for your soul. By the way, the purpose of marriage is to get people to heaven, not to just satisfy a romantic desire. This is the elder talking now. What would submission look like there? I go to mom and dad. I say, you know what? Your kids don't know the Bible very well, and I think it's because they're not coming to classes at all. We have some pretty good teachers. I think for their sake and for your sake, you need to be coming to the classes for their Bible studies and setting that example for your children and for the weaker members among us, which you may be one of, by the way. What would submission look like in that case? You notice I'm not answering any of these questions. <laughs> but I hope you are in your heart. And this is different. This is radical, I think. This is a little bit like, wait a minute, we're in America. People don't meddle in other people's lives. And what I do in my own time is my business. Is that the way it is to be a Christian? Listen, we're in a warfare. We're under attack. And you know what? When you're under attack, would you like to be in a platoon that had a pretty experienced leader, sergeant, leading the group? He's been in a war before. He knows what to do. And if he does and the shells are coming in, who am I going to listen to? And he says to do something. I don't fully understand it. I've not lived as long as he has. I'm going to duck and cover whatever he tells me to do. That's the war we're in. That's what elders are for. It's not to set the time of the meeting. Well, I've kind of given you examples of cases where the elders are coming to you and calling you out about something. I, I think I'm going to challenge you even more than that. I could give more examples that would be uncomfortable. Maybe I will do that. What if the elders come to you and say, you know what, I'm concerned based on the kind of expenses you have, that you're getting yourself into debt that's going to take control of you. Now, wait a minute. That's my finances. That's not my spiritual life. Does it impact your spiritual life? When you have a debt that forces you to take a job that you really don't need or work extra hours that are going to be harmful to yourself and your family? And the elder comes and said, I'm afraid you're getting into debt. This is not the way Christ would have you manage your life. Oh, no man, anything save to love one another, he might quote. What would submission look like in that case? <clears throat> well, two men kind of got into an argument several years ago. And uh, neither of them has figured out how to forget that. And they hold that grudge. And an elder comes to those men and says, you know what? I'm pointing to a woman so it doesn't look like I'm knowing anything. <laughs> you need to work that out. Jesus calls on you to forgive. And the way you forgive another one, Matthew 18, is the way God's going to forgive you. You have got to get reconciled with that brother. They're your brother. You're in the family. What would submission look like if that happened? It's being more personal.
I noticed that a man is not respecting his wife. And he said things critical of her in public, and you know that usually means if he's doing it in public, that his attitude in private may be even worse than that. And as an elder, I go to that man, I say, you know what, I don't see you guys treating each other right in your relationship. Now, maybe you're not having something overt going on, but if you don't build that back up and get to the point where your love for one another is shown in your actions and in your speech, and finally, as a result, maybe back into your romantic life, because that's usually gone by then, you're going to have a terrible impact on your spiritual life and that of your kids. And the elder goes to the family and calls out the, son, the husband and the wife and says, you've got to fix this. You've got to treat your wife as Christ loved the church. And he goes to the wife and he says, I don't care what a jerk he is. You've got to be submissive. You've got to respect him. As Abraham, as Sarah called Abraham Lord, you've got to show that respect to him. And it's not a 50-50 proposition. You can only change yourself. You go do the right thing. I don't care what they've done to you. You put Jesus on the cross. So whatever you come up with, I'm going to trump it. With Jesus' sacrifice. You do the right thing toward your mate. To whom you made a vow before God that you would love for better or for worse. What would submission look like in that case? Okay. Enough examples? Maybe you're thinking, yeah, but what if... Stop. Stop. We're talking about men who are qualified and their work is to do this very thing. That is what their work is. If it's not, what is it? And you say, well, those are just matters of judgment. Okay, you know what? Elders don't get to rule in matters that aren't judgment. If it's revealed in the Word, they don't have a say on that. They just follow the Word. They only really do rule in matters of judgment. If you think about it, isn't that right? You mean I have to take their judgment over mine? What does submission look like? I'm asking you the same thing. But I don't think we got there yet. I don't think we've said what submission looks like yet. I've not made you uncomfortable yet. I'm getting there. (laughs) I'm going to tell you a story, and it's imaginary. It is not real. It's not even based on something that nearly happened. I'm just going to make it up. Um, Let's say there's a young girl... And she dresses, let's just say, it's stylish, but not necessarily appropriate. Can you imagine that? That would never happen, I don't suppose. But, you know, that, that, that happens. And one night, after the services, the elders have called her into their classroom where they normally have their meetings as elders. You know, where they go. She goes in. And uh, after about maybe four or five minutes, uh, they come out. All of them come out. And the girl's obviously been crying. She's not weeping, but, you know, it's clear she's been upset. You can kind of picture that. And then from then on, you know, when she comes, her dresses are longer. And they're not nearly as tight. And she's wearing, I don't even know what they call it, the little sweaters underneath the low-cut thing. So that, you know, that's... And she's dressing different. Different. Every service, she's got a different kind of different whole approach to the way she dresses. What do you think of that? She's submitting. Yeah, I was about to say, what does submission look like? It might look like that. 
What do you think of that? Does that bother you? And I'll tell you, the reason it might bother you is I haven't told you the rest of the story. But I want to tell you two stories, two ways that that might have happened. Here's the first. This girl's troubled. She doesn't know how to dress. The elders called her in. They laid down the law. They said, look, you can worship here. You can dress like this. She didn't like it, but she said, okay, I'll do it. That's one version of the story. Can you imagine that? That bothered you a little bit? Maybe, maybe not. Would the elders need to do that even if that was true? But I want to tell you another version of the story, which I think explains what submission might be. This girl, as it turns out, did not grow up in a home or an environment where there were any women to help her understand the effect that a woman's body has. She just doesn't know. She's only influenced by the world around her and the style she understands. But it's kind of gotten into her head that maybe she needs some guidance about how she ought to dress. And she goes to the wisest, most spiritually minded men she knows, and she says, would you help me with this? They have the meeting, and she's a little bit upset, and she listens to them, and she now I'm going to ask again, what does submission look like? You see the difference. One is you're just called out on something, and I'm a little bit upset that I had to be called out, but okay, I swallow hard, and I look, now I guess the Bible says I have to do this. I'll submit to their judgment. You see, that's one version of submission. You see, there's a richer version of submission that says I. These are the gifts God gave me to help me with my life. And I'm not waiting for them to call me out. I'm going to go to these men. And I'm going to say, help me. My wife and I are not getting along. I'm afraid I'm getting into debt over my head. I don't know what to do about it. I don't know how to stop. Can you help me? Can you give me some life guidance? Because it's going to have a spiritual impact on me. I'm having trouble motivating my kids to come to the service. What can you do? Can some of the ladies help me with this? Make it more comfortable. You see what I'm getting at? That's now I'm still asking the question, what does submission look like? Is it just swallowing hard when somebody calls me out on something? Or is it actually looking for some way to find a coach or a mentor or a father that I never had or a mother that I never had? It's give me some guidance to help me with my fight, my battle that I'm in. So, this is a parenthesis, okay? So, we're going to take a small commercial break here for a second. Whenever I talk about this kind of stuff, I'm afraid I'm leaving the impression that I'm telling you about the way I was an elder. I'm not, okay? So, I'm not claiming to be. But I believe that's God's pattern for what it should be. This man over here is closer to what I'm describing than anybody I've ever met. But I'm not claiming to be this. But don't you see that that would be the Bible pattern for that? You know, I'm going to actually, I'm going to go and look at 1 Timothy 3 for just a second. Paul says that one of the qualifications for an elder is that he rules, oh, oh, there's that word again. He rules his household well because if a man doesn't know how to rule his own household, how can he rule the household or the family of God? There's a reason why you want men who are proven as fathers in their household to be elders. Why is that? Because their work is a lot like what a father does. That's the only conclusion I can come up with. That's what the verse says, I think. Now let me ask you, how do fathers rule their house? Do they rule their house as a group? Like a corporate group? Or do they rule their house by knowing each individual child? 
and each person in that household and thinking about what they need and providing individual attention and affection and maybe tailoring the kind of instruction and guidance they give for the needs of each single child. You know what I'm talking about? You know, sometimes we think about how many people come on Sunday night compared to how many come on Sunday morning. Y'all ever think about that? This is a little bit smaller group. So sometimes we have about 80% attendance on Sunday night of the people who come on Sunday night. I think that's pretty good. Don't you? 80%. What if a father ruled his household that way? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's supper time. Hey, there are five people in the family. Four of the five are here. Now, that 16-year-old girl, I don't know where she is, but 80%. You know, some families only get 60% at supper time. Is that the way fathers rule their house? No. They have individual affection, night and day, individual care, discipline, and love for the sheep. For the sheep. Okay. Well, there aren't elders here. I don't know if you have been qualified or may not have been qualified. The elders not. Go back to 1 Thessalonians 5. Look at one other passage. Just the third hand. Go back to that verse we looked at, verse 12. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Who are we talking about there? And I think he's, Paul is telling these Thessalonians, you know who your leaders are, your shepherds, you know them, recognize them for their work, Verse 13, esteem them highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Which, by the way, I won't get into that, but you want to destroy the work of a shepherd, what's one way to do it based on that? Is not be at peace among yourselves. And I think we get mixed up and think our role here is to get a better building or something. I don't know what we think it is. Our role is to watch on behalf of our soul. That's what it is. And anything that distracts from that... I mean, in a harmful way, I think we're sinning. We're getting in the way of what the role of the truth is. We're trying to grow children up to be strong men. And if we're having some squabble over something that doesn't have to do with anybody's souls, we're, we're actually being counterproductive. Well, sorry, that was, that's not the point I want to make. I'm, I'm off topic. Verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren. Wait a minute. Who? Are these the elders that he's talking to now in that next verse? Verse 14. We exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak. We've heard about that before, haven't we? Remember Paul? Uphold the weak, be patient with all. Who is he talking to? Is he talking to shepherds there? Or is he talking to the rest of us? I think he's talking to all of us. Is it possible that all of those things I've said about those magic men called elders might be some of the job we all have? As I read that list, now maybe there's not the same authority. Maybe there's not the same level of experience. But look at some of the words he uses there. Warn those who are unruly. 
comfort the faint hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all. I think we all have to some extent the role that we've described the elder having, and that is maybe we won't call it shepherding sheep, but it certainly is caring for the sheep of others, don't you think? And the weak in particular, and the children as we talked about before, that's the role that we are. And I suspect that the role we have is somewhat proportional to our ability, don't you think? If in a family, for example, you've got older sisters and older brothers, they have the responsibility for the younger ones. It isn't the other way around. The little guys don't take care of the older children. It's the other way around. So the more experience, the more maturity, and the more knowledge you have, the more responsibility you have for others. Now, I just have one other question. And maybe you're just like, maybe I've just made you mad. I don't know. That I'm not doing that. Nobody's going to have control over my life that way. Least of all, another Christian who's not even an elder. Is that what you're saying, Mark? I want to ask you this question as I close. Is this really just about submitting to other men and women? Some old woman helping them with younger women. Or is it maybe a little bit related to whether I'm willing to submit to the chief shepherd? When someone tells me my marriage isn't what it's supposed to be, or I'm in debt, or I'm not dressing the way I should, or my associates are not what they ought to be, or the career I've chosen is detrimental to my soul, maybe I get mad at that person. But if I'm unwilling to visit that possibility, maybe I'm just not. Is that a possibility? That really my stubbornness is not because there's a person here that I'm not respecting. It's maybe that I just don't want to open up that room of my life to submit to Jesus. Is that a possibility? After all, what is Jesus? He is the chief shepherd. And these shepherds, you might call them underlings, according to 1 Peter 5, they report to the chief shepherd. They give an account for what they've done to him. And my challenge to you tonight would be, maybe you don't have the challenge of submitting to earthly shepherds who have actually tried to give you advice in your life. But there are men who preach to you and admonish you and have maybe sent labor night and day. There are women who are trying to teach and mentor you. There are Christian examples who don't even know their examples sometimes that are in some way showing you what Jesus wants you to be. Isn't that the way it works? That's what teachers do. And my question is, maybe not so much, are you willing to submit, now that we kind of know what submission looks like, to men, maybe I'm asking the question, who will follow Jesus? And if someone's calling you, there may be no earthly shepherds tonight, but it's Jesus, the loving shepherd, calls you into the fold of safety, where there's rest, the invitation comes from the chief shepherd and really it's the same question I've been asking you this whole lesson what does submission look like when Jesus the loving shepherd calls you to come and change your life and turn your life over to him and submit in things that are going to be difficult but they are for your good because he knows everything so I'm offering an invitation that doesn't come from a shepherd anymore. It comes from the chief shepherd that's in heaven. It's calling you to 
come to a place of safety. Wes, you want to lead the song? There's no front row, but there's some seats over here if you want some uh, help. Uh, we encourage you to come.